Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moisel, and these are the women who rule. Welcome back to She Dynasty. Today, I will have the pleasure of speaking with Mako Takayama, the founder and CEO of AWE, which stands for Advancing Women Executives. AWE's mission is to accelerate the careers of women in business and to improve the global economy. They currently partner with corporate executives at over 200 Fortune 500 companies based in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, New York, and Chicago. And their clients include executives at Walt Disney Company, Mattel, Bank of America, PepsiCo, Netflix, and a ton of other huge corporations. Mako is a connector, a tireless promoter of women, a strategic change agent, a visionary CEO, but most importantly, she's a mom. Hi, Mako. Hi. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for being here. I have to tell you, I think that probably over 10 people in the last year have come to me and said, do you know Mako? You guys have to meet. And so I am so excited that you're here today because when that happens and that energy kind of comes around me, it's always a little bit magical. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. And the feeling is completely mutual. And same thing has happened to me and saying, you absolutely need to meet Valerie. She dynasty. Woo. She's all about women empowerment. So thank you so much again for having me. Love it. Well, you have done some very extraordinary things. And um, I really want to dig into your company, what you do for women. You know, it's interesting because She Dynasty is so much about um, interviewing female executives, either C-suite or women on their way to that, or just women who are, you know, in the executive suite at all. And you're kind of one of the forces behind getting some of those women there. So this could not be more appropriate for, you know, kind of a deep dive on She Dynasty. So before we get started, I want to hear a little bit about your past, your journey. Um, So you were born and raised in the U.S., but your parents were immigrants. Tell us a little bit about your past. Yes. So I always love to say that I was born of rebels. And uh, my father moved to the U.S. in 1955. He moved from Japan, from Tokyo to Los Angeles, went back and found a wife with my mother in 1965. But if you can imagine moving to the U.S. in 1955, which is fairly quickly after the war, it was not an easy time for a Japanese immigrant to move to L.A. He moved here because he was, a, uh, he was an architecture student, and he was, felt like Japan was probably a little bit too homogeneous and wanted to get access to a country that had more opportunity for him. So he was a free spirit. Um, and he, your mother is Japanese as well. My mother's Japanese as well. So she was a little bit more traditional, but she came along for the ride. Um, but just to give you a little bit of background, my, my father was actually the eldest son. So I'm the 26th or 27th generation of Takayamas. Oh, wow. So the, my sister is the oldest daughter of the oldest son of the oldest son. And in fact, the generation, the name actually ends with us. Wow. Because we don't have any more Takayamas. I don't have any brothers. So my my children actually have a last name, which is has my last name in it also. So you've so done that on purpose to, to carry it exactly. On. They're That's able so to carry smart. it on a little bit. That's, I love that. It's great. Um, but my my father was a the the son of a a banker who actually wanted to do something different. So he left banking and became an artist. Beautiful. Then, so I I come from immigrant parents as well, and so I don't know a lot about Japanese culture, but my parents are um, from North Africa originally. And, you know, they come from a culture where it's kind of odd or strange or weird for women to want to be so ambitious. Is that a similar a similar issue in Japanese culture? Oh, absolutely. In fact, if you take a look at a lot of the Asian cultures, Japan is probably one of the worst countries when it comes to women empowerment. And I always, I go to Japan quite often. Um, we try to go about once every year and two years. And I always love to say that if I lived, if I my parents hadn't moved to the U.S., I would be an incredibly different individual. Crazy, right? So different. I can't yeah. imagine. My dad didn't know what to do with me for so many years. He's like, stop being so ambitious. This is weird. You're not supposed to be like this. You know, it's it, it was just always like a weird place to be. Mm-hmm. And finally, he kind of got on board and realized, okay, I can't fight this current. She is who she is. Right. And now he's my biggest champion. So it's been pretty interesting to see that shift in him. 
Well, I mean, it's because they, they were the ones who moved here, right? Right, So they absolutely. moved here, and so they, they created you in this way. Yeah, they just didn't know any difference. It's just right. like a whole new world for them. Right. I definitely got that from my grandparents. My grandparents were probably a little bit more traditional and didn't want us to be, my sister and I, to be as strong-headed. Right. Okay. All right. So uh, where did you go to college? So I went to Bryn Mawr College, which is a women's college outside of Philadelphia. Okay. I grew up outside of Chicago, and then knew I always wanted to go to college on the East Coast, so went there. Beautiful. Your major? Art history. Okay, interesting. So art history is something that I was always interested in. I think it's because I come from an art background. Um, at that time when I went to college, though, it was a little bit more like you could do an art history major and go and become an investment banker or a lawyer or something like that. So I didn't think that it was going to be my be-all and end-all, right. though that's where I started my career. Beautiful. And your first job out of college? I worked at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Beautiful. And what were your aspirations or dreams at the time when you graduated from college? What did you think you would be? You know, that's a great question. I think at, the, at the one part of me thought that I was always going to go into business. And so I thought about going down the investment banking route. Oh, interesting. And But then I got access to this opportunity. So I think my other thought was I'll probably become the director of a museum at some point. Wow. So that was kind of my, my dream. So art is really a passion for you. It is. Beautiful. It is. Um, and that's where that was the first chapter of my career. I ended up in working at the Guggenheim Museum in Venice, which ended up getting me to the Guggenheim Museum in New York and the Museum of Modern Art. All right. So tell us about the spark um, that led to the creation of AWE. So after many years of working in nonprofit in the museum world, I actually left, and it's what I love to call my kind of I sold my soul moment, and I went into management consulting. Uh, I was in consulting for many years, and it was a great opportunity to learn a lot more about business. After doing that, I decided that I wanted to go into executive recruiting. And the reason why I was really interested in executive recruiting was because it just provided real insight into the concept of human capital within corporate America. You know, understanding why do people hire certain individuals? What are companies looking for? And as I was an executive recruiter, it was fascinating because I started to host these events for women, and I began to get feedback from the women who would come back to me and say things like, I didn't realize that there were so many of us out there. And I thought to myself, that's such a strange comment. I mean, we represent over 50% of the population. Why would we, if we walk into a room of women, be surprised that there were so many yeah, I, that you know, like that's that. such an interesting fact because people don't realize we represent 50% of the population. However, we don't represent that in the executive roles that, you know, that companies have. That's unbelievable if you think about it that way. Oh, it's really, I mean, it's 5%. I think we've just, we keep on going, just teetering around the 5% mark for Fortune 500 CEOs. The number of women on boards has increased. I think it's about 22% now. Um, but the number of women in senior management, which actually goes down to about the senior director, director level, has actually gone down from 23% to 21% across 2017 to 2018. Right. It seems like there's a lot of pressure on big companies to put women on boards. You know what I mean? It seems like they're they're saying you have to meet a quota. You ha- this It's not going to look good. You know, I, I'm, I'm hoping and hopeful that people are doing it because they really believe that that's the way it should be and not because of the pressures um, around the fact that it's just the right thing to do. Well, I don't think it's actually bad that when there's kind of legislation. So there's legislation in California that said that by the end of 2020, every public company that was California-based company had to have at least one woman on its Ugh, board. Love that. And so, which I didn't was, know that. Yes, which is a great legislation. There's definitely ways that companies have gotten around it. Um, Goldman Sachs just announced that they will not take any company IPO unless they have one woman on its board. I love it. Yeah, I, I read um, that. Or diversity candidate. I love that. Um, which is fantastic. So I think that, again, legislation, since it's not happening any other way, it's not happening organically. I don't think that legislation is a bad thing. And I think that the assumption should always be that the, in, the companies are also going to be finding incredibly well-qualified candidates. In fact, that was really what was the driver for me to launch AWE, was because when I was an executive recruiter, I found that I was always personally interested in um, promoting and really trying to get more women into these senior ranks. And, you know, in working with a hiring manager, they would always say to me things like, I don't care what the person looks like. I just want the best, which is great. Yeah. Um, If the hiring manager was a woman, she truly didn't care what the person looked like. She was really looking for the person who was the best. Many of my clients, except for a handful who were very focused on diversity, Um, What I began to realize was because of these 
amazingly kind of embedded biases that we all have, many of the male clients that I had, when I started to peel away the layer of the onions of what does it mean that I'm looking for the best, it really meant I'm looking for somebody who looks like me. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it really was because I, hands down, the better candidate would always typically not look like that individual. But it comes down to, again, bias, right? It's Bias is not a bad thing. I think that oftentimes people think about the concept of bias as being, oh, you're calling me a racist, oh, you're calling me a misogynist. Mm-hmm. And it really isn't. It really is this thing that's embedded within us where we will make judgments based on our own experiences, based on our own histories. Um, and it's just simply needing to be aware of the decisions that we make or the actions that we take, knowing that oftentimes we'll have bias in them. I've got, you know, bias. I always love to say I've got, you know, grammar bias. If someone ends their sentence with at, you know, I just have a bias around, wow, that person does not understand grammar. Yeah. I mean, so. I, work, I work in an industry where there's only, you know, 3% of women that mm-hmm. are represented. So I get it. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot of bias. So um, so that was really kind of what was the, the driver for me to start awe was, again, going back to when women started saying, you know, I, I didn't realize that there were so many of us out there. It was also realizing, well, first off, the numbers are not, are not there. We aren't in those positions. But it was also the recognition that we are actually not physically out there. We, I'm going to make some gross generalizations here, but we tend to focus a lot more on our job than we do our career. So we're not actually going out building relationships. Mm-hmm. We're not networking. Right. We think the concept of networking is something that's not a good thing. Totally. And so I saw time and time again that, ironically, a lot of times, the times when women wanted to actually network was when they needed to network which is the worst time to network. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's interesting. Talk about that, the worst time to network. It happens because we feel like, again, this concept of networking, of building relationships is always based on, I'm trying to do this to get something out of, out of you. I always love to call this my future TED Talk, which is um, that we don't understand what I love to call the currency of business, that ultimately the currency of business has to do with I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I love it. And, um, you know, so building a relationship is oftentimes around, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, but you don't know when you're going to need that Correct. back scratch. Correct. So, you know, why don't not kind of go out there and build relationships? I, a, a great example is, is that when I was in executive recruiting, my job was not only to meet with candidates, but a lot of it was to meet with potential clients right. who would hire me to find them great candidates. And so, you know, I would reach out to CFOs, CEOs, and so forth, and it was much more typical for male executives to say, sure, I'll meet you, sure. You know, the, and, and they would meet and they would say, well, you know, I'm not really quite sure that there is an opportunity for us to do any business with you, but it's really good to know what totally, you do and, yeah. and to kind of understand what your specialty is. With women, they would oftentimes say, oh, you know what, we don't have any needs right now. We don't need that. And inevitably, in the recruiting business, because we also fill positions, I would get phone calls from the same executive that was I was trying to meet with a few months later saying, oh, would you be, would you be available to have a conversation? Um, could you call me on my personal cell phone? Right. And it was when they needed help. And, you know, it's just human nature to actually call the person back who's helped you first yeah. before calling the person Absolutely. back. And so we've tried to say this, which is I've always loved to say, you know, build those relationships now because you never know when you might be able to actually. I have learned that in my career 100%. You know, it's interesting. Um, Callie and I have gone to some networking events and women, you know, that are mostly or all women. It's kind of funny just because this is something that, um, you know, networking, to your point, is not something that comes naturally to a lot of women. And so it's something I've been very like cognizant of and trying to kind of work through, you know, because you walk into a room full of women and you're like, I don't, you know, do I walk up to that person? Do I not? Do I say something? And so I've, I made a conscious decision at the last like four or five events that I've went to that not only was I going to walk up to every single woman who like came in my path, I was going to put out my hand and say, hi, my name is Valerie Moisel and I am the executive creative director and founder of The Woo and She Dynasty. What do you do? And it's amazing because, first of all, I think that women are, number one, kind of taken off guard by how bold I am in doing that. Um, and number two, I think they're relieved that mm. I am that person who can, like, break the ice and mm. do that because they're so willing to open up and talk. 
Um, and I just wish that everybody in the room would just, you know, understand, we're here to network, guys. Let's do it. Right. You know, it's it's really interesting that what we have found time and time again is, is that we hear from women that they're really interested in paying back. You know, this person has helped me, therefore I really want to give back. And ironically, what we find is, is that the language is give back, but it's actually not giving back. It's actually paying forward. So... An example is is that there was a woman that I spoke to once, and she said to me, I uh, was looking for a job, and nobody was helping me make introductions until I met this one woman, and she was amazing. She basically said, I'll open up my Rolodex. Who can I help introduce you to? And she said, I really learned from her, and it was so great to see that because I had not seen that in anybody else. And so I said, oh, great. So what did you, what did you do with that knowledge? And she said, Oh, you know, next time somebody needed help, I definitely did the exact same thing that she did for me. I love that. But then I said to her, did you actually ever go back to her and ask her, what can I do for you? How can I help you? You've now helped me. And she paused and she said, no, I didn't. Interesting. And I think that that's something that it's almost like it's one of these many, many rules that we never learned. Um, and so I always say to every single one of our clients and any woman that I meet, or male for that matter, you know, think about the people that have actually helped you and go back to them and thank them. Thank them and ask them the question, what can I do to help you? Um, and what I ironically find is, is that more men do this naturally than we as women do. Right. Is there any um, concern, you know, when women work in corporate environments, I've had kind of some conversations off the microphone where women are concerned to help other women within their own organization because it's so political and they're trying to kind of move up in a corporate ladder and there's so few positions that the women have and so everyone seems like they're kind of really on board with the idea of helping people that aren't in their personal space but how do you get over that idea within your own organization of you know helping and supporting the women around you without it being so competitive that people are vying for the job and there's only a few spots left so i always love to say that being a woman is a social construct right so the social construct here is is that there're only a certain number of spots that are available to women right the social construct is not that every position could be held by a woman and so um, there definitely is the queen bee syndrome. And ironically, the way that the queen bee syndrome manifests itself in our world, we will oftentimes push women down as opposed to lifting up and pushing out, right? So, and this is what we see typically in the kind of male world, which is if there's a threat that occurs, rather than keeping that threat within one's own space, it is, I'm going to move this threat outside of my space, even if it means elevating this threat. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's this concept of, I want to ensure that I'm always, you know, if I'm the alpha, I want to ensure that I'm always surrounded by the individuals who are really supporting me. So imagine if, as women, we did the same thing, where if we saw that there was a threat, rather than continuing to push down, we would actually elevate up and out then we would continue to start to see more of these positions. Now, what's ironic is, is that the concept of the queen bee is not 100% accurate. And so more women support women than men support women. Oh, that's good to know. You have some statistics around that? Yes. Okay. And so that is, so it's great to know that ultimately more women are supporting women, yet there is a phenomenon, it's called second, second generation gender bias, where it's the first kind of generation or second generation of women that actually were able to rise to the top, they're oftentimes the women who are not supportive of other women because they had to fight to get there. So it's the concept of, you know, I had to fight to get to where I am. That's the way that the world is. You need to fight to get to where I am. It's like being in a really bad relationship where you don't know what it's like to be in a really good relationship, so you think that that's the reality of the world, when in fact... Imagine how different the world would be if we actually knew what it was like to actually have each other's unconditional support. Be amazing. Yes. So I understand early on in um, the conception of awe, you hit one of the worst snags possible and your father passed away. Tell us a little bit about that time and what you learned from, from that event. Absolutely. So I think as an entrepreneur, as you probably know, 
It's very easy to think of an idea for a company and to not have it be a reality, at least for a lot of people. I think for you, it actually was a reality very quickly early on, yeah. very, very early on. Yeah, I'm an anomaly though, so it's it was kind of a, a fluke, but right. yes. So I think most entrepreneurs will think about an idea for a while, and in their mind, they've actually started the company, but in reality, nothing has happened. So that's exactly what happened with me, which is that I kept on telling everyone, starting this company, I'm doing this company, this is what I'm focused, what it's going to be about, this is what I'm going to be focused on. Um, I did everything from coming up with a name for the company to... Great name, by the way. Thank you. Love it so much. Thank you. To um, even getting feedback from clients, potential clients, about what this company was about. And then my father was diagnosed with cancer, and three weeks later, he passed away. That's crazy. It was, it was one of those situations where he probably should have been diagnosed a lot earlier. Right. But what was amazingly beautiful was that um, I, my sister, my mother, and I, the three of us, were able to spend pretty much every minute with him during those last three weeks. And it was one of the most beautiful you know, times that I've ever experienced. Uh, and at one point, my father turned to me and said, you know, I'm incredibly happy. He said, I'm the happiest I've ever been. I just got chills. Amazing, Imagine, amazing. Right? The happiest I've ever been. And so then he passed away. And I think, you know, grief is something that is really fascinating the way that it manifests itself. So I really didn't grieve for a few months, probably about two to three months. And then two to three months later... Kind of hit you? It hit me. And it was, it was actually just two months later, and we were coming back from a holiday. My kids were about to go back to school. And I think all of a sudden, reality was about to start again. It was going to be September. And I thought back to what my father said, and I thought to myself, wow... He just gave my sister, my mother, and I the most amazing gift, which is that in his mind, he realized, and he was incredibly zen in his outlook overall. And so as I was grieving, I thought to myself, wow, what a gift to be able to give my family, to be able to say at any point I could turn to them and say, I've done everything I've wanted to do. And so, and that was really what was the biggest driver for me to all of a sudden realize, wait, this idea of this company that's been in my head mm-hmm. is not a reality. I don't have an LLC. Right. I don't have a you know, website. Right. I don't have a you know, trademark anything. And so with that, immediately I went into overdrive because I realized, wow, I need to be able to actually turn to myself, not just my family, but to myself, and say, I've done everything I've wanted to do. That is so beautiful. I love that story. Thank Thank you for sharing that. I hope that everyone has the ability to actually live that way. Beautiful. Okay. So I want to now dive in a little bit to the process of awe and what you do. And so I understand that you have a few programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Explain that to us. So AWE, or Advancing Women Executives, we are a training and development company with the mission to create greater equity and economic growth in the workplace. So what we do is is that we have a lot of different programs for different level executives. We've got a leader program for VP and above. We have an accelerator program for uh, manager through senior director level women. We have a program called LXE, which stands for Leading by Example, which is a training that we do just for men. Oh, wow. So, yes. And um, we have a program called Awesomer, which stands for All Sisters of Multi-Ethnicity and Race. Oh, wow. But, so uh, are you hired by companies or individuals? So we're hired by companies. So companies, so we have offices, we're based in LA, we have offices in the Bay Area, New York, Chicago, and we're actually expanding our presence to Dallas, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and Boston, and, and Denver this year. Mm-hmm. And so what we do at each level is provide different types of services. So at the leader level, we'll work with, again, a VP level and above corporate executive. We get hired by the company, um, or sh- she pays for it out of her corporate budget is really oh, what wow. happens. Okay. Um, we don't actually have people pay personally. So that you can't pay personally. You Somebody can't, pay can't personally. yeah. So a right. company has to kind of sponsor something. Absolutely. Okay. And what she'll get access to is everything from um, executive coaching. She gets access to networking opportunities, all locally based. 
And she gets access to an on-site training where we go on-site and we train not just herself, but it could be her team, it could be the entire company, it could be an internal employee resources group for women right. or anybody else. So again, we leave it up to them who the audience is. Your client list is actually very, very impressive. Um, Thank you. you work with every major corporation in this country, or almost every. So how do they find out about you, or how do they... Um, learn about your services. So thank you. We are incredibly fortunate. We work with over 250 of the Fortune 500 companies. Most of the major companies that are based in the regions that we currently support mm-hmm. are our clients. And so through word of mouth, a lot of it is now through through word of mouth, through existing um, clients, through partnerships. So awe is not for entrepreneurs, for people that own like, you know, smaller companies. It's more for larger corporations. Is that correct? It is. It's an enterprise service. And so um, it is for larger companies, and the reason is because ultimately we're trying to really create the kind of cultural change within a lot of companies, and because the reason why we do what we do and the reason why the mission is to create greater equity and economic growth in the workplace is because the companies that have more women at the top mm-hmm. financially outperform their peers that don't. Right. So we're not simply doing this from an equity perspective, but we're really looking at this from a overall economic growth perspective. Right. I just wanted to clarify that because I don't want you to start getting a ton of calls from my entrepreneurial listeners because <laughs> we're split about 50-50. We have half of our listeners that are more kind of, you know, in the corporate system and then the other half more entrepreneurial. So I just want to make sure people understand what you do. Thank you. Um, I think that there's a lot of other resources also that a lot, a lot more resources that may be available for entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, but if anybody has any questions, please don't hesitate to send them our way because we can definitely address them. Well, I think today can be a little bit of a cheat sheet, too, because yeah. so much, obviously, of what applies to exe- women executives can apply to entrepreneurs. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the programs you offer and some of the principles you teach. Can you walk us through a little bit of that? Absolutely. So we do a lot of training around everything from professional branding to networking. In fact, the focus was started with the concept of sponsorship. So we have seen, and there have been studies that have been, that have been done that show that sponsorship is actually um, one of the reasons why more men get promoted than women do. More men have sponsors than women. We as women, we tend to have more mentors. Mentors are fantastic, but they tend to be much more sounding boards than they are people who actually help to accelerate our careers. So we do training around how to network how to build your kind of base, how to build your your group of advisors. Um, before you do that, though, what we began to realize was it's really important to understand how to actually sell yourself. What is your, what is your brand? But even your brand, what is the elevator pitch? Mm-hmm. And before you do the elevator pitch, you need to know what your brand is. And so we've created methodologies around each of these areas to understand what is your professional brand? Who are you? Where do you want to go? Um, how do you actually introduce yourself? What kind of network can you build? How can you find a strong mentor? How can you find a strong sponsor? Um, so these are the types of trainings that we do. We also do training on the so topic. A lot, of, a lot of communication skills of how to express who you are and where you want to go and what you believe in. Absolutely. The foundation for awe is based on two pillars. So the first pillar that I mentioned earlier was this concept of networking. And kind of expanding the group of people that Mm -hmm. not necessarily we know, but that know us. Our whole mantra is it's not about who you know, it's about who knows you. Right. And so uh, that's one of our our big things that we like to focus on because we find that as women, generally speaking, we tend to have very deep networks that are narrow in scope. And so as opposed to having broad networks that are kind of shallow. Narrow in the sense that it's people just in your industry? What do you mean by narrow? It's narrow is more, it's just a smaller group. It's smaller group of people who you know incredibly well professionally, but um, it, what we find is is that in business, and in fact, there's been studies that have been done around from a sociological perspective, the importance of it's called weak ties. You know, it, it's really important to have a lot of weak ties. Weak ties are individuals that may know who you are, but may not know you very well. Oh, okay. And so in that, think about that. That's business, right? It's about knowing a broader group of people. I always love to say business is all about recency. It's about the person that you happen to have just had a conversation with or maybe have gotten a note about. Somebody else asks you a question, maybe needs a recommendation, needs a referral, mm-hmm. and you pass along that person's name just because they happen to have been in your kind of mind um, at that moment. Um, and so, again, the first pillar is around this concept of connections. How do we help women expand their connections? 
Um, but the second pillar was around this concept of career. What we have found is, is that based on all the thousands of conversations that we've had, 90% of the women that we speak to, when we ask the question, what's next for you, they actually don't have an answer. So their answer may be something that's relatively vague. I'd like to continue to grow. I like to, I love my job. I really want to make sure that I'm doing well at my job. I'd like to get promoted even. Yet it is rare to hear somebody say, I want to become a chief marketing officer. I'd like to become a senior director of digital media. I'd like to become a VP of learning and development. And so um, what we're trying to do is to support women to actually be much more articulate about what that next step is. Like really putting a flag in the ground of what it is that you want and helping them define that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That. Absolutely. Yeah. I read in an, an interview that you did, one piece of advice that you love is that women should informally promote themselves by talking to their boss and giving them small updates about um, what they're doing. Can you talk a mm-hmm. bit about that? It's so important because think about it. I think oftentimes as as not just women, but maybe individuals, somebody may ask us to do something and our assumption is, okay, I'll go and do it. And they should assume it's going to get done. But that's not the way that the world works. So oftentimes individuals are actually talking about the work that they're doing. Um, so Valerie, let me ask you a question. Sure. When's the last time you've updated somebody about something that you've done? You know, Callie is actually here with us right now. And Callie is Hi. my executive assistant. She's sitting with us. And this is this is something we actually talk about a lot because mm-hmm. a lot of times I will give her, you know, very specific tasks or things that she needs to accomplish. And, you know, she does a beautiful job at doing them. But um, I often have to check in to see if it's done. And I keep telling her, tell you know, update me. Because when she comes to me proactively and tells me it's done, there's something, there's a confidence that gives me as a boss mm-hmm. that like she's just handled it. I don't have to worry about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Kelly, tell me what your th- your thoughts are from that perspective. Yeah, I've been with Valerie for a while, over a year, like a year and a half now. And I have a better understanding since I've been working closely with her what to check in on and what to be more proactive about and what is a priority for her. So sometimes I'm given a task and she wants it five minutes ago, like wants it done, wants it confirmed that it's done. And I, I, I can identify now what is more important than something that's not and just check and say, hey, this is still in the works. But just keeping her in the loop no matter what is definitely yeah, a big part helps. of my job. <laughs> it helps because I never want to feel like, you know, she, she's, you know, it's her job to kind of update me. So when I'm going to her and saying, where are we with this? Right. You know, it feels like it's more work for me. Mm-hmm. And even if something's not accomplished yet. Just knowing that it's on its way to being accomplished mm-hmm. and things are moving forward is so, so important to me as mm-hmm. a boss. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't agree with you more. Like over-communicating where you are in the process, whether a task has been completed or it's in process and it's moving forward, is such a good kind of learning moment for people to listen to, that to hear right now. It is. It's really important. I mean, I think it starts kind of early on in, with children, right? We see this with children in this behavior, which is that it is not rare for young boys to actually go back and tell their parents when they've been told, clean up your room, that they've cleaned up their room. I mean, I've seen this with my own kids, right? They've done a, maybe not that great of a job cleaning up their room, but they will come back and let me know, and they'll be very proud about it. In fact, my my older son, it's very ironic, I have this incredible kind of alpha beta son, and uh, who told me at a very young age that he would say things like, you know, when I get older, I'm going to start advancing male executives. Oh, that's <laughs> so, hilarious. So he, um, but he, he's a really good example where he basically would come back and tell me everything. So one day when he was probably about eight or nine years old, I said to him, you know, a lot of girls don't actually come back and tell their parents that they've cleaned up their room or they've done this because they assume, you know, they're going to go and do it. And he at that very young age said, why? And I said, because they don't think it's necessary. And he said, well, I do it because I want you to know that I've done it. So important. Right? I do it because yeah. I want you to praise me too. Right, right. Right? And so, but we've been, society has told us that we don't need to, as women, do that. And so I say that if you've got a son or a daughter that doesn't do that, please get them to actually so do that at a very young age. Yeah. Um, but now what's interesting is, is that, Valerie, you said, um, because if Kelly doesn't tell tell me, I'm, I'm worried about it, right? I'm worried. It, wor- it stresses me out. It's, right. So, and that's something that as women, what we're doing is, is that we are now holding on to this weight 
waiting to hear that something's been done instead of realizing I've delegated this. Right. And so I don't need to worry about it anymore. So by actually worrying about it as women, we've actually not fully delegated it because we still are carrying the weight of making sure that it's being done. This is one of my favorite moments on She Dynasty. <laughs> wow, I'm learning so much right now. No, it's it's absolutely true. And it's not that it's not getting done. It's it's just adding kind of extra stress. And I think, again, for those listening, please, please take this to heart because it's so, so important for your bosses to kind of understand where you are in your process. You know, And I mean, obviously don't overdo it. You don't need an update every five minutes, but just know what that cadence is and when those uh, moments are that they do need to be updated. I think that's really important. You know, it's interesting also, I have two young daughters. I have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old. And, you know, communication is so, so important. And I worry so much about the younger generation just because they're not being told, you know, or taught how to communicate um, as strongly as, you know, our generation did. And, um, you know, constantly I battle with my daughter of, you know, she's trying to get an internship right now. And she's like, they've asked her for an interview and just like the, the freak out about like, mom, they want to talk to me, you know, it's, and, and she's someone, you know, who, who can speak and, um, you know, can be articulate, but it just doesn't come as, as natively to her mm. as it did to people our age or does to people our age just because we were forced to do that. We couldn't hide behind our technology and our text. And she actually said to me, why can't I do the interview through email or text? And I said, that's just not how it works, you know? And so just really interesting trying to train her on um, on those skills and communication at all is just a hard thing for younger, younger generations. It is. And I'm glad that you bring up the concept of confidence because that's actually something that we focus a lot on. And so as you think about your daughter going through this process, before you even think about the concept of confidence, think about the concept of resilience. We see that there's a direct correlation of confidence to resilience. So they're able to bounce back really quickly. So think about, ask her, you know, so what happens if it actually goes poorly? What, how will you react? And we always love to say that the longer the individual ponders the negative or even the positive means that their resilience is actually less strong than it could be. So we've seen that individuals who have strong resilience and strong confidence don't tend to focus on the negative nor the positive for a very long time. So I think that probably, like Valerie, you know, you're probably like that, right? So if you get negative news, how do you actually manage that news? And how, do, how does that manifest itself in your mind? I mean, for me, I, as a leader, I think the immediate thing I do, and this is something that's been very kind of something I've taught myself, you know, earlier in my career, freak out, totally freak out. But, you know, as a boss, you can't freak out immediately. I, you know, take a deep breath. I get the, you know, the, the panic inside of me, but I kind of compose myself and say, no big deal. We got this. Let's figure it out. And I realized that by putting that vibe out to everybody around me, immediately everybody calms down. Because as a leader, you have to be that way. What about good news? When you get good news, how do you actually process that? Yeah, I mean, what I've learned also is I have to take good news with a grain of salt because sometimes I think it's better than it is. You know, I have to be careful because sometimes if you kind of, you know, overly celebrate Mm -hmm. too soon, you get disappointed. Mm -hmm. And so I try to be cautiously kind of optimistic about things. You know, we've gotten calls that, you know, we've won. And then three days later, oh, the marketing director was fired and now it's mm-hmm. over. And so, of course, I have to manage people's expectations within my company. And, you know, it's it's tricky. It's a right. tricky place to be. You know, good news is hard also because it doesn't always follow through the way you think it's going to. But even if the news was really great, yeah. do you think that that would be something? Like where it was like a solid piece oh, of for sure. news. But, do, but my assumption is, is that you probably – wouldn't dwell on it for a very long time. It's that you appreciate the good news, you appreciate the negative news, um, and yet you move beyond it, right? That's that's resilience. So that's the resilience, um, which is oftentimes what is is missing, right, from um, this concept of confidence. And so we see that consistently, which is that individuals that tend to belabor um, negativity or even kind of positivity will end up having lower levels of confidence. It's really important, really important in business to be able to do that. It's um, important in life. I think it's it really is. Yeah. You know, going back to this idea of, you know, communicating to your boss, um, and this is something that I want younger generations to hear, I often will check in with people on where we are with um, projects or things, and the answer very, very often is, I sent you an email about it. 
And I think it's one of my biggest pet peeves um, for a few reasons. Number one, it's hard for me to read every email that mm-hmm. I have, you know, and it's something I hear so often from so many employees. And so I think one thing that you're touching on that is really important is it's not only important to update, and sometimes it's an email and that's fine, but how important it is to make those human connections with your mm-hmm. boss and sit down with them and update them and kind of know, let them know what your thoughts around the process are and where you are with things. Do you yeah. agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of, the, um, one of our clients told us about how internally they've created this thing called a manager style guide. And so, and so they sent it to us and we've adopted it. Um, which is it's an opportunity as a manager to set out the expectations of what the communication style looks like. It's been great because we're able to articulate what stresses you out as a manager, right? So to actually understand that. And it's as a manager, it's incredibly important to kind of go through your own assessment of what does stress me out. But one of the things we like about it is to also indicate to individuals who report up to us um, these are the types of individuals that I've sponsored, you know, so that it shows, you know, if you have these types of characteristics and qualities, know that this is something that I see as being something that I like to kind of put my name behind. Mm-hmm. It's something where I'll continue to support you mm-hmm. if this is something that's of interest to you. I always love to say, though, you know, it's a two-way street, right? If somebody doesn't agree with the manager's style, it may not be a good fit. It does not mean that that individual is not a strong individual. It does not mean that that individual doesn't have potential. Um, Through the work that we do around confidence and resilience, we talk a lot about feedback. And uh, we look at some of the work that's been done by Martin Seligman, who uh, looks at the three Ps, which is personalization, permanence, um, and how we actually will hear feedback. And um, I always love to share with women, which is know that when feedback is given, that it is not something that represents the individual holistically, um, and that it's something that's permanent for that individual, and that does not mean that they will never be able to change. Um, Also know that we are not perfect, right? I think that that's one of the pressures that we oftentimes have as women, which is that we need to be good at everything. That's oftentimes the reason why women will not talk about, this is what I want to do next, and to be really solid about it. Because it's almost like if we say that, we're saying that we can't do anything else. And why is it in this world that we feel like we have to do everything? Um, I think part of it is because society tells us that we need to do everything, right? But um, at the end of the day, I think it's because we also put that pressure on ourselves. You know, when we did our pre-interview call before we met, Mm -hmm. you told me um, a stat that kind of was staggering, um, and I've repeated it to a lot of people. You said that since you have started your company, um, which was how many years ago? Eight years ago. Eight years ago. You would think that the situation for women executives advancing is getting better, and you actually told me that it, that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? And my next question is, so does that mean we're all wasting our time doing this? <laughs> no, don't say that. No, 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 no. Um, so the numbers are definitely getting better at the CEO rank. Um, again, nominally better. We finally just got beyond the 5% mark. Um, and the numbers are getting better on the board ranks. Um, but the number of women in senior management has gone down. So it's gone it's down. It's actually gone down. So 23% to 21%, 2017 to 2018. What's causing that? You know, there's a lot of different theories behind that. Um, societally, our expectations are that women shouldn't be at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say societally, I, I, I'm very specific in not saying men, right? It's it's women. I mean, there's been a lot of research that's been done that shows that women actually hold more biases against women in the workplace than men do. Mm-hmm. There's a fantastic um, study that uh, is called the implicit bias test that's done by Harvard. I have you ever done that? I haven't. Oh, it's so good. I highly recommend it. Um, literally, if you Google Harvard implicit bias career gender, you get access to this test. And anybody can take it. And what it does is it actually tests the amount of bias that's unconscious that you have about women in the workplace. When they first did this study, 83% of women had the bias, unconscious, that women should be at home and men should be working. 77% of men had that bias. Wow. Right? So again... It's not just men, right? It's just, and again, when I say it's women, like, you know, this is 
not of our own volition, right? It's society and it's kind of, you know, some even say that it's genetics and that it's biology. It's a little misleading, though, just because there's so much talk and um, action around, you know, women empowerment right now. And so you feel, I mean, until you told me that stat, I was like, we're moving ahead, we're pushing forward, we're doing great things. And, you know, it's so topical in the news and in social media and, you know, with everything that's happening politically. But it's, you know, it's obviously a little bit disheartening to hear that, you know, the numbers are not kind of pushing forward as we'd like them to. Mm -hmm. So I guess really all we can do is keep doing what we're doing and hopefully where we network and we help each other, that's where things will really start to change and getting more women in the fold. Absolutely. I think ultimately my goal is is that um, it, all of these topics that we talk about today are not, not in the news. My hope is, is that in the future it'll be normal to see a woman coach of a male professional sports right. team. When a CEO like Marissa Meyer, formerly of Yahoo, makes a change within her organization, it doesn't become the headline for Silicon Valley News when she made the change that Yahoo would no longer have remote employees. At the same time, another company did the exact same thing. I'm not going to mention the company, but they did the exact same thing, and they there was nothing in the news about it. Um, and so we do need to continue to move this forward. People feel like because people are talking about it, the numbers have improved. Therefore, they're not doing the conscious work that needs to be done. Right. They're not it's looking at... It's a lot at, of talk and not action. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about how different companies would be if every company looked like a company like... Um, uh, Patagonia. Patagonia is amazing. I don't know if you know this, but Patagonia has an on-site childcare. They will pay for their mothers of newborns to travel with their babies and will pay for another person to travel with them so that they can ensure that the baby has care. Incredible. They will... want to go work there. Bus, I know. <laughs> they will bus children from their schools back to Patagonia yeah. after school so that parents don't need to worry that there needs to be someone mm. at home to look after Amazing. the children. Now, I mean, this is not something that comes for free, right? So oftentimes yeah. it's subsidized. I mean, the fact that we still have like a nine to five work day seems kind of ridiculous. It does, absolutely. You know? Okay, I want to change gears a little bit because I understand um, that there's some shifts happening kind mm -hmm. of in your career. So tell us briefly what, what's next for you. Thank you. I love that question, uh, since that's a question that we ask everybody. Um, so I continue to focus very much on awe. We're growing. We're growing with our respective programs. Um, I'm also concurrently launching a separate enterprise software company because I realize that the work that we're doing within awe, I'm so incredibly passionate about it. Um, and I also fully recognize that we're not getting in front of enough people. We have over 1,500 clients. We work with I'd probably get in front of about 25,000 people a year um, through our training. Um, but I fully recognize that we need to be in front of millions, millions. of people. Absolutely. Millions. That's where we'll, you'll make the difference. Exactly. Yeah. From a kind of behavioral change perspective. Yeah. And the only way to do that is through technology. Wow. So that's so you're something kind of, that you're kind of leveling it up a bit. Yes. So recognizing that just from a scalability perspective, that we need to use have a technology that's going to um, be able to create real kind of significant shifts. So it's connected to what you're doing. It's just very much. It's amplifying what you're doing. Exactly. It's very much. We're still in incubation stages, but we'll be rolling out a product across the next year. Great. All right. Well, Mako, I think I could talk to you all day. Likewise. I, I have to tell you, this is probably one of the first interviews that I think I've completely just thrown my script away. <laughs> I, I don't think I asked one question that was on my script. So I actually love that because that's, I think, making me a better interviewer. So it. thank you for pushing me. Um, anyways, Callie. You're so good. Oh. You're really good at this. You're natural. Oh, thank you. Well, Callie is going to ask you some rapid fire questions. And then I think we're going to be all done. Can't wait. Okay. Some rapid fire questions. What keeps you up at night? So what keeps me up at night, recognizing how hard it is to create change in a system that's been happening for ever. And so, um, you know, trying to change the way in which people perceive women, trying to change the way that people perceive people of color, trying to change the way that people see each other. Okay, great answer. If you could completely switch careers, what would you do? So, I, you know, it's funny. I, I used to say that um, if I had a a completely different life, I would have been a surrogate mother. 
Um, I absolutely loved, loved, loved being pregnant. Oh, I can't relate to that one. <laughs> a lot of women can't relate I to that. I hated it with every bone in my body. I hated it, but wow. I know. I love to of, hear that. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I loved I loved it. I loved being pregnant. Um, you know, I was really incredibly fortunate to get pregnant, and I was incredibly fortunate to actually not have any morning sickness. And so um, I Ever? Was, like not one day? Not one day. That's a real thing? Yeah, I know. I think I had morning sickness the entire nine months of both pregnancies. So oh, I don't I'm get sorry. it. That's I okay. Know, that's I know. Okay. And so I think that um, that's that's one thing that I've always said. Um, I also think I would have loved to have been a lawyer. I also think I would have loved to have been like a technology entrepreneur earlier on in my career. Wow. Okay. What do you think the biggest challenge is facing women today? So it's a sh- very short word I can use is misogyny. I do think that it's amazing that we represent 50% of the world and yet are still considered a second-class citizen. The fact that when most people think, when they hear the word person, they actually, most people think white, male, heterosexual, adult. It means simply that the majority of people don't even think of women as being a person. That's awful. Um, Do you have any female role models? I do. So many. I, you know what? I do have to say, though, I think that um, my mother is my biggest role model in that um, she came from Japan when she was 25 years old. And the fact that she has grown up to be an incredibly independent woman in a completely cult- different culture than the culture that she grew up in. I mean, she ended up growing up as an American. She actually was a Japanese citizen for 50 years, was a green card holder for 50 years, and as soon as Trump became president, immediately said, I need to get to become a U.S. citizen. And so she said, I, she said, I want to become a U.S. citizen. I want to be able to vote in the next election. Good, good for her. Yay. Right. That's incredible. Yes. What would you say your greatest strength and weakness is? My greatest strength is um, probably my greatest weakness, which is being incredibly assertive and wanting change to happen very quickly. Before I go, before my children go, and I see that it's not happening fast enough. And so that's my drive for that. But my drive is probably my greatest weakness. Amazing. And what does success mean to you? I think success means to me to be able to, when my time comes and my number is called, to be able to say, I've done everything I've wanted to do. I'm the happiest I've ever been. I love that. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Well, Mako, thank you. Thank you for your time here. I'm incredibly inspired by this conversation. I cannot wait for people to listen to this episode. I mean, it's obviously so relevant to um, my audience. And I'm so excited that I know you now. And I can't wait to continue our, our relationship. Yes, let's go change the world. Let's do it. Love it. 